This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. It's late September, the time of year when bulb catalogs are a constant refrain in your inbox and mailbox. If gardening at its core is an activity of optimism, then planting bulbs is one of its most profound gestures of hope. I grew up gardening alongside my mother in Colorado at 8,000 feet, but my first real adult garden came to me in 1995 when my partner and I moved into a tiny 1919 square brick bungalow in the Nordic North Seattle neighborhood of Ballard. The square flat back garden included gangly, untended abelia, philadelphus, rhododendron, and camellia. Across the country, along a tidal marsh in Beaufort, South Carolina, my mother was tending her last garden, a garden of old live oaks, jasmine, camellias, and tea olive. In 1994, she'd been introduced by her best friend, Betty Ann Mead, to a new old bulb supplier, Scott Kunst. For my first garden-warming gift in my Ballard garden, my mother sent me a shipment of bulbs from Old House Gardens, including 11 different kinds of narcissus suited for my new gardening climate. My mother ordered over 500 bulbs for her own garden that year and ended up in urgent care being treated for tennis elbow after digging them all in herself. That first year in my new garden, as in every subsequent shipment sent to me from Old House Gardens, no matter how busy he might be with customers along the lines of Martha Stewart and Colonial Williamsburg, with the little bags of named bulbs and corms and rhizomes, Scott Kunst has written a personal note in a loose, legible hand. In the fall of 1998, his note expressed his sadness over the death of my mother to breast cancer. This year, the note in my fall bulb catalog read, Your mother was one of my first customers. You are one of my last, but not the last for Old House Gardens. Today, we're joined by Scott Kunst, founder and soon-to-be-retiring owner of Old House Gardens, to hear more about his passion for heirloom bulbs. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Jennifer, and thanks for that wonderful introduction. So let's start with your own personal history Uh, your early influences in becoming a plant lover, a nature lover, a garden lover? I was a little kid who was fascinated with nature, maybe fascinated with the whole world. But, you know, I loved, um, I collected bugs and butterflies. And uh, we lived in a small town and I could, uh, when I got a little older, I could go out into the woods. And there was a a creek down by the railroad tracks, heavily polluted, I'm sure, but uh, my friends and I loved it. Um, you know, frogs and all that kind of stuff, rock stars. And I had a grandmother who I loved, who was one of the um, most important people in my life, um, who was a big gardener, uh, an old, uh, you know, Polish lady who uh, gardened in a very old style that's become new again. She uh, would mingle the flowers right in with the vegetables and uh, her way of composting, which I'd never heard of before, but you just take the eggshells and the coffee grounds and so on, and you dig a little hole in the garden here and there, and you put it in. So my grandmother had a tiny, tiny backyard, but there were a lot of plants in it, um, strawberries, tomatoes, peppers, and lots of flowers. And, uh, you know, my keenness for nature and uh, having this wonderful uh, garden at my beloved grandmother's house uh, sparked this idea that I'd like to try a garden, too. So I talked my dad into digging up a little tiny bit of our backyard and planted my first 
you know, radishes. I don't even remember what I planted, though. We have a, a photograph of me holding my first two radishes, so I know I planted those. I learned very early on that's a lot more fun to plant the garden than it is to thin the seedlings and weed it and all that kind of uh, stuff. Um, it was always a hard task for me to keep up with when I was a kid, but um, uh, I loved growing things. I loved harvesting and, and sharing what uh, you know, appeared almost as mad, as if by magic mm-hmm. in my little backyard, and uh, I've been gardening ever since. And then my interest in historic things goes way back to I, I was a kid who loved dinosaurs. I thought I was going to be a paleontologist when I was, for a long time, actually. Um, so as I got older, uh, those interests kind of uh, came together. I bought a little old house. I was really excited to have my own yard where I could garden however I liked, and I walked out. And like you, I found a yard that it wasn't a blank slate. It, uh, people had gardened there. And uh, I found plants that I'd never seen before and um, things that didn't make sense to me. They were obviously from a different era. And I got so intrigued, I uh, started researching all that and trying to figure it out. And one thing led to another, and here I am today. And between the seven-year-old gardener and the adult gardener, you, you went off to Columbia and took a degree and then returned home to Ann Arbor. Yeah, I, I got a master's degree in historic preservation and mm-hmm. did a lot of independent work during that on landscapes and gardens and plants. And actually, when I finished my uh, master's, my department head said, would you like to teach a class in that? And I said, you betcha. <laughs> so I started teaching uh, a class a year in that, um, and I thought, okay, there must be other people out there who are interested in this too. So I offered my services as a landscape historian and helping museum sites and private homeowners research and uh, restore their yards. And you were also a teacher. Yeah, I was. My day job was uh, I was teaching public school English at a public middle school here in Ann Arbor. And so in these early stories, we see some of the threads that really come out a little more strongly in the next phase of your life, which include curiosity, strong curiosity, and Mm -hmm. a bent towards education and historic preservation, and this, your term, anthropological passion. When uh, my wife and I go to a new restaurant, she says, I know what you're going to order, because it's always the weirdest thing on the menu. It's the thing I have never tried before, maybe never even heard of before. And that's kind of been my approach all through life. And, you know, I, I came to old bulbs, not because they were old, but because they were new to me and they were a discovery and they were something I had never seen of be- seen before uh, or even thought about, that a, that a plant could have a history. Oh, my gosh. Um, so I'm always, I, I, that's one thing I like about the past. Someone has said that the past is a foreign country, and uh, I think in many ways it is. It's people living in ways that are different than we do today. And people looking at the world and nature, their place in the world, how to be happy and all that, um, what's beautiful in different ways. And uh, you can go around the world or you can go into the past and find the same thing, uh, different perspectives on what it is to be uh, a human being. And I find that uh, thrilling and, uh, uh, I don't know, good for the soul. Yes. So what launched the bulb business for you? Well, uh, so I had this little old yard and had learned some things, and I was looking for uh, historic plants. And uh, at the time, actually, I thought I had to find them in uh, nursery catalogs, 
but uh, I bumped into, um, uh, you know, I, I say uh, my whole life I've been knocking on doors uh, hoping to find somebody or a path to um, more of what I, what I want. So I ran into this guy, Art Tucker, who is a uh, botany professor mm-hmm. uh, in uh, Delaware and a great enthusiast for heirloom plants. And uh, he sent me, and I didn't even ask. I'd barely met the guy uh, through mail or whatever, and he sent me a box full of uh, heirloom plants. I, all of a sudden, I realized that antique plants were all over the place. Um, so uh, besides starting to collect them when I found them or look for them and collect them, um, I also was scouring uh, catalogs for older varieties, but the problem was virtually no catalog said this is an old variety, and particularly bulbs. Um, but I sort of found a Rosetta Stone. I discovered that the bulb industry in the Netherlands has published books listing bulbs, thousands, tens of thousands of bulbs uh, by name and maybe a short color description and when they were introduced. And lo and behold, some of those bulbs from 100, 150 years ago were still in mainstream catalogs. So I started to collect those. And my favorite was a tulip called Prince of Austria, which dates to 1860 and sort of looks like just a reddish-orange tulip. But the fabulous thing about it is, number one, it's wonderfully fragrant. And two, uh, it returned better in my you know, rather rainy Midwestern, upper Midwestern yard, better than any tulip uh, I'd ever grown. Here, tulips tend to disappear because our summers are just too wet for them. Mm. So I love that uh, tulip and told everyone about it. But little by little, it dropped out of every catalog in North America until one last Canadian catalog offered it. And then one year I opened that and it was gone. Mm. And I felt like I sort of had the last California condor or the last giant panda in my backyard. And I thought, this is too good. I can't let it go extinct. Um, Maybe I could do something to save it. Maybe I could share some of these bulbs I've become excited about with other gardeners. And uh, so I talked it over with my wife and launched a little tiny, literally three-page catalog that we sent to 500 people. And lo and behold, perfect strangers sent money back in the mail and encouraging words. And uh, I was off on this new adventure. And this new adventure is very mission-driven for you. What is the mission in your mind? Uh, it is. Um, it's to, you know, to preserve the best of the past uh, of our garden heritage. And I think of, you know, gardening to me, one thing I love about it is it's this intersection of nature and art, really. Um, I love wilderness. I love wild plants. I love wild things, as I've told you. But I also love human beings, and I love the creative achievements of human beings. I think we are amazing. Um, and just like in art, um, the, the sorts of plants that have been grown through time have changed. And uh, I see it as my mission to uh, help find the best of these, uh, even if they're out of fashion today, like hyacinths, for example, and to try to preserve them. I don't want to preserve every old plant. That's not the point. Um, in the 19th century, some 20,000 named dahlias were introduced, and I can show you a database of those. But uh, only five, six, seven have managed to survive. I wish we had more than that. I don't want to save all 20,000. I just want to try to hang on to the best and save those for gardeners today and into the future. 
I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, we're joined by Scott Kunst, founder and soon-to-be-retiring owner of Old House Gardens, purveyors and champions of heirloom bulb varieties from around the world and throughout time since 1993. We'll be back after the break to hear more. Stay with us. Welcome back. Before the break, we began our conversation with Scott Kunst of Old House Gardens in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Since 1993, Scott and his team have worked to save and rejuvenate interest in populations of heirloom bulbs from around the world, making them widely available to U.S. gardeners. You go to bat for a lot of bulbs like you did for this one lovely tulip that pulled you in your life's most recent direction, mm-hmm. and but not all of them must work out. What what are some of your hardest losses in the bulb? Yeah, of- that's been tough. Um, you know, I was an idealistic young man when I <clears throat> launched into this, or relatively young, and uh, I guess I never really thought I'd save every uh, great old bulb, but um, I thought I'd be able to hang on to more of them, I guess. Or, I don't know. It's painful when one slips through our fingers. Uh, one in particular recently is a really deep, dark, um, blue-purple crocus, the darkest crocus that's ever been introduced. It's got the unfortunate name of Negro Boy, but when it was introduced in the early 1900s, that, you know, that was um, a perfectly fine name. Um, and I try not to hold that against the bulb itself. An incredibly dark crocus, uh, just gorgeous. And uh, one uh, fall, our uh, bulb supplier in the Netherlands said, I'm sorry, the only grower uh, gave it up completely, and I wasn't even able to uh, get his last crop because he didn't mention it to me before he he got rid of them. Um, That's my dog barking in the background. Yes, yes. Uh, So that was a terrible loss. The good news is it's preserved in... um, in the Hortus bulborum, which is the Dutch um, botanical garden devoted to preserving historic flower bulbs. But, uh, so it's not lost forever, but in, it's really lost to mainstream gardeners because uh, once it gets to the Hortus bulborum, it's such a small operation that prices are literally at least 10 times what they would have been uh, with this one uh, last Dutch farmer when he was producing them. So that really limits access to the broadest diversity for the broadest number it does. of it gardeners, does. yeah. And some of your greatest successes? Oh, good question. I'm always thrilled when I, um, uh, when something turns up that I haven't seen before. I've been working at this for a long time. Um, sometimes bulbs come to us from uh, fellow gardeners. We're, we're always having people email us photos and saying, what's this? This is, was in my house when I moved in. 40 years ago, or this was passed down from my grandmother, or there's a small, a couple of small gladiolus that um, are relatively hardy. I garden in zone 6A, Michigan, and uh, they reliably get through the winter for us. Um, they're small flowered. Um, one's a pale yellow, and we named it Carolina Primrose. Another one that I think is even prettier um, is called um, Boone. It's sort of an apricot-colored uh, gladiolus. And the flowers are, you know, a third maybe the size of regular glads. They're spaced out on the stem, um, very graceful. 
more, you know, they perform in the garden like a perennial, and uh, they typically don't need staking because they're shorter as well, um, you know, a good three feet tall, but still. And they can grow, they multiply. Uh, we'll plant a corm as big as a pencil eraser, and a lot of times that blooms by the end of the season. So I love that about them too. This whole kind of group of uh, smaller flowered uh, gladiolus based on um, uh, species coming out of South Africa in the early part of the 20th century virtually disappeared uh, because they weren't suited to, you know, the sort of massive uh, arrangements that uh, were pushing the development of GLADS through most of the last century. But um, we promoted these through our catalog, and I think more and more people are giving Gladiolus another look now, which is part of what I want people to do. I want people to see that what's in uh, mainstream nurseries today isn't the only kind of gladiolus or tulip or daftyl or whatever that's out there. It's just the most popular form for today. So I'd say Carolina, Boone, Carolina Primrose and Boone are two of, uh, two of our success stories. And that brings up for me, listening to you describe that, um, the importance that your work is going towards protecting diversity. Yeah, Jennifer, it is true. As the, you know, as advances in uh, communication and transportation and uh, propagation have sort of, you know, turned our backyard gardens into this global economy, um, there's a lot more pressure to uh, simplify down. It's less economically uh, successful today for uh, the Dutch bulb industry to sell uh, 2,000 varieties of hyacinths as they once did, or even 200, or even 100, uh, it it's, makes more sense. There are economies of scale in offering just uh, a handful of hyacinths. Mm -hmm. And there's also always a lot of pressure for new things. And I understand that. I love new things, too. But um, uh, new tends to be sort of a, a wave that keeps washing across us and uh, whatever is popular right now, we get a whole lot of varieties of that. And then maybe 20 years down the road, uh, most of those have disappeared. And since then, there have been other waves of the hottest new thing. How do you source your bulbs? Uh, a lot of them are still being grown by, um, you know, mainstream farmers in the Netherlands today. And a lot of times it's, um, like I saw with Prince of Austria in the catalogs, that Five farmers are growing it, and then three, and then one. And um, sometimes it's hard to find the last farmer. But we've been working for 20 years plus with uh, uh, some guys in the Netherlands who also have a special interest in historic bulbs, and they've sort of got a reputation for that. So every now and then, uh, you know, there's one daffodil that uh, uh, Carlos uh, over in the Netherlands said, the reason we have it is because an old man dropped by my office one day with a bag full of bulbs, and he said, here, uh, this is uh, Mrs. Langtree from the 1800s. Um, I want you to have it. So uh, mainstream farmers, then um, our guys in the Netherlands know uh, some specialist growers. In fact, um, people over there who have some vast collections of bulbs, including historic rice. We also work with a whole lot of American growers, more than I would guess any other bulb catalog in the United States. And a lot of these are um, you know, sort of backyard enthusiasts or very, very small farmers who uh, 
um, have been growing daffodils all their life, for example, or have been deeply into um, uh, dahlias, and they have older varieties, or we contract with them to grow some older varieties, uh, especially for us. And then in the Netherlands, there's this great little public garden called the Hortus bulborum, which means the bulb garden, and uh, it's conserving literally thousands of varieties of uh, tulips mostly, but also hyacinths, daffodils, and so on, uh, most of which have gone commercially extinct. In other words, they've completely dropped out of the commercial marketplace and the farmer's fields and are only being preserved by, um, by this little botanical garden. And we're there only, uh, they sell only to us uh, here in North America. And you grow some of your own. Yeah, that's true, we do. Some we just some are so rare, and we were having such a hard time getting them in any sort of quantity that uh, I thought, man, let's uh, find a little farm around here, and we'll grow them ourselves. That didn't work out. That was beyond my reach. But um, we had been growing some of every bulb we sold every year in my neighbor's backyard, uh, where a little old vegetable garden had gone belly up years ago, and uh, I asked him, hey, that little weedy corner in back, could I grow some bulbs there? And little by little... We've taken over his whole backyard at his insistence, I want to say, <laughs> and uh, he gets to enjoy beautiful flowers and a maintenance-free backyard, and, and we have some space there. But then I thought, hey, maybe this is a model that could work uh, in other ways, too, not just for trialing the bulbs we sell, but actually for producing uh, some bulbs. So we managed to find some other folks uh, here in this old neighborhood by downtown Ann Arbor uh, that had a vacant lot or maybe a backyard on a rental house that ran down to the railroad tracks and that nobody was using except park a couple of cars, and um, we got permission, made some arrangements, dug them up, and started uh, growing uh, all of the bearded iris that we sell because we just could not find them in any quantity, and um, many of the uh, historic daylilies that we grow as well, and a few other uh, extra rare bulbs like Byzantine gladiolus and so on. I believe you refer to these as your micro farms, and I have said to this, I have said this to you before, but I, I think symbolically they're a beautiful, um, almost metaphor for bulbs themselves, in that they are small and they conserve resources and they make use of areas and resources that other plants aren't using at, at a given time. And so they, they fill a very specific niche in our ecology and um, I just love the little micro farms. So, yeah. that's a beautiful metaphor. I, I totally agree with you, Jennifer. The to to, to end, I will um, remind you of something you have said to me. I'm sure you've said it many times before. But one of the things you love about gardening is its incredibly forgiving ability to uh, allow us to experiment, and that with each new season we can try again, and each new each new year we can try again, and you love that um, both forum and place for experimentation. If you had two bulbs you would recommend home gardeners experiment with that are not as mainstream or, or common, what would those two bulbs be? Oh, thank you. That's a tough choice. Um, well, for fall planted bulbs, and our fall shipping season starts in a couple of weeks, and uh, hopefully I can say go to oldhousegardens.com and uh, see what you can find. But one of our truly most fabulous bulbs uh, is called Byzantine gladiolus. Maybe I shouldn't go back to another glad, but this is such an unusual glad. We ship it in the fall because it is so hardy. 
uh, at least through 6A, and we have friends in uh, Zone 5 where there's good snow cover that uh, they say it returns like a perennial for them year after year after year. If you saw, most gardeners, if they saw the blooms, would never think they were gladiolus blooms because the petals are very narrow um, and very wildflower-looking. Uh, a deep, deep, saturated uh, magenta color or, I don't know, that color that's between purple and pink, but just incredibly intense, uh, really beautiful. Even in bud, these things are beautiful. They bloom right at the end of spring, right as summer starts, and they send up these uh, stems that are maybe three feet tall, arch a bit at the top, and the buds are pointed and dark and just incredible. So um, there are hard-to-find Elsewhere, uh, many similar but weenier, as one of my customers said, <laughs> weenier substitutes are common. Uh, but we have uh, the true variety that's been in gardens since the 1500s and grown for us uh, in California um, by an old friend. So Byzantine gladiolus is a great choice for fall gardens to experiment with. And for uh, spring, I would recommend the single uh, tuberose, which is called Mexican single tuberoses are part of the Aztec world. Uh, they've been in gardens for so long. This is kind of incredible, Jennifer. They have never in modern times been found in the wild. They're sort of like corn, where it's very difficult to trace the wild ancestor because they've been cultivated for so long. Hmm. So the only reason tuberoses are still with us is because gardeners have passed them on for literally hundreds of years. You know, there's no point describing the tuberose because everybody knows the tuberose. But somehow in the 20th century, they fell out of fashion. Um, what's great about them is their fragrance, oh, evening so, fragrance, basically, yeah. that's just fabulous. Um, it's a very simple white flower, um, but uh, terrific. A lot of the tuberose bulbs in the marketplace are quite small, and a lot of times in northern climates they won't get big enough to bloom by the end of the summer. But we get nice big bulbs out of actually a family farm in Illinois, of all places, where they've been grown since, I believe, the 1930s. And uh, you put a couple of them in a clay pot, or if you're, you're in a warmer garden, you stick them in the soil. And towards the end of the summer, they send up these um, three-foot-tall uh, stems with a cluster of waxy white tubular flowers that just smell amazing. Mm -hmm. So Mexican single tube roses uh, for spring planting and Byzantine glads for fall planting, a couple of great plants from the past that are out of fashion that uh, would be wonderful to experiment with. Scott Kunst, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Jennifer. Happy gardening. Scott Kunst is the owner and founder of Old House Gardens, growers and sellers and champions of heirloom bulbs from Ann Arbor, Michigan, since 1993. Scott will be retiring in the spring of 2017, but his superstar staff are taking Old House Gardens forward, and we will have lots of new personality and innovation to look forward to. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Sarah Bohannon. For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit MyNSPR.org. For more information, including many photos, please visit JewelGarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.